Uh, greetings, everybody. Uh, this is um, a panel a discussion on Godzilla, uh, Godzilla's Revenge, aka All Monsters Attack, aka Minya, Son of Godzilla. We're celebrating its 50th anniversary, and uh, we'll just talk a little bit about the film and how it was made, who made it, uh, some of our uh, thoughts about it. Um, Ed has a good story if he wants to tell it to us about the first time he saw the film. Uh, I remember seeing this uh, as a kid growing up. It was one of the first Godzilla films I used to see in, uh, you know, in repeat showings on you know, Saturday afternoons on Creature Feature programs in the 1970s. And um, I, I really was fond of it from a very young age because I, too, like Ichiro, was a, a latchkey kid. I grew up in a single-parent household and used to come home to an empty apartment and uh, spent a lot of time... Uh, being you know, a comic book and monster kind of kid, spent a lot of time alone myself thinking about monster movies, talking about them, having friends thinking I was a complete uh, nerd and uh, you know, a social outcast because I wanted to talk about Godzilla instead of uh, you know, the Los Angeles Rams or Lakers or something like that. And uh, so I, I could identify with this kid. His experience was similar to some of the things that I was going, up, uh, going through when I grew up. Um, uh, just to start out, uh, I think we should acknowledge, I, I, I don't think I'm incorrect in stating this, that this is a movie that a lot of people uh, don't like or have not liked in the past. I'd be interested in uh, have, you know, polling the audience, how many, how many of you at, at this time or at some point in your you know, career as a fan disliked this film for one reason or another? Yeah, there you go. I mean, we can be honest here, you're among friends, and I think, you know, there are a number of reasons why people have felt that way about this film. Uh, the most uh, prevalent thing I hear over and over again is that it's full of stock footage, which is, of course, true, although uh, I, you know, I've come to a point where I think the stock footage is actually uh, a legitimate way of presenting this story for reasons I think we're going to talk about. There's no destruction scenes. There are no destruction scenes in the film. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a story about a kid. It's not really a story about monsters attacking Tokyo or, or, or causing any kind of mayhem. It's really a story about a, a child. And so it's very different in its approach uh, from the rest of the series and what, what came before. So those are some of the reasons, I think, that, um, that people have tended to reject it. But I think it's actually one of the, the better directed and better conceived films in the series for, for reasons I think we're going to talk about. Yeah. And yeah, I think uh, in in part, you know, I think people's reaction to this film really depends on what point in your life you first saw it. Uh, I know in my case, probably I couldn't it couldn't have been a worse time in in my life for you know for me to see this film. This thing came out right right after uh, I had seen Monster Zero. You know, we had Destroy All Monsters and. Uh, shown here in 69, Monster Zero didn't premiere in the United States until 1970. So at that time, you know, before this is before the internet, you know all the history of Godzilla. As far as I knew, Monster Zero was a film that came right after Destroy All Monsters. Then the next year, this film comes out, and, and here's the poster that I saw in the theater uh, lobby the week before, and it's like, oh, wow, another Godzilla film. So this is great. Well, uh, as it turns out, you know, the, the next week, uh, the film was showing here in Chicago area, but it was only showing at the drive-in. It was a triple feature, Monster Zero, God, uh, War of the Gargantuas, and Godzilla's Revenge. 
And I'll never forget, it was, it was uh, in, I think it was in January. I'm not sure if it was December, January. But anyway, it was one of those weekends when it was zero. And uh, I didn't, that was before I had, you know, had a, a driver's license. So I had to just beg my father to take me to the drive-in to see this film. And he, being a really good sport, took me. And we sat through in, in the freezing cold. Uh, the first two films, Monster Zero, War of the Gargantuas, which actually my, my father, to his credit, really loved War of the Gargantuas. And then this film came on. Okay, and you know, I'm, again, it's coming off of Monster Zero and, and Destroy All Monsters, and I'm really expecting another kind of film like that. And instead, this film comes on, and we have all these, you know, little, little kid scenes, and I'm, I'm thinking, Geez, my dad took me in, you know, and sat through three hours in below zero temperatures to see this, and I'm, you know, I'm even embarrassed to see it because, you know, I'm 18, like I think I was like 17 or 18 at the right. time. So, you know, just from the start, it was it was just not a really good condition to go see this film, uh, and you know, I, I didn't really take it for what it was worth. I mean, I, I all I could react is this is not what I'm used to seeing for Godzilla. There's you know, none of the, you know, the same production value that I'm expecting. It's all the scenes I've seen before, and it's a little kid's story. Mm -hmm. So it was really kind of a, a rough experience for me. Uh, and I really didn't get that awakening as to what this film was all about until many years later when I had my own kid. And she's like three years old, and I you know, put this film on for her, and that's, you know, that was the revelation for me. Is like, well, wait a minute. Okay, this is who the film is really for. And you could see what magic it's working for a kid when she's only like three years old mm -hmm. and can totally understand what's going on in the film and relate to the kid and understand the situation. And seeing it through her eyes really opened my eyes as to what kind of film this really was. And suddenly I kind of you know, sit back and, and get a different appreciation for what the film is all about and how it was made. And I could really, you know, change my opinion and, and come to realize, hey, this is actually not such a bad film after all. It works for children, and it works yeah. for you if you're an adult. But if you're yeah. somewhere in between, yeah, yeah, it's it's easy to reject it. So uh, anyway, that's that's my story for for seeing seeing the film for the first time. And I, and I have to believe that in, in large part, for a lot of you people in the audience who don't like the film, probably you've seen it in some kind of similar circumstance where you were much older when you were first introduced to the film. And that does tend to you know, color your opinion about it. So anyway, uh, with that in mind, let, you know, let's talk a little bit about you know, how this film came to be. And yes, this is the first Godzilla movie that was really made just for kids. Uh, if you, you know, look at the history of Japanese science fiction films at that time, uh, you know, Godzilla films were really made for mostly for all ages, but you had uh, Daiei Studios making the Gamera films, and Gamera films were completely targeted towards little kids, you know, like maybe eight years and under. And, you know, they, they treated you know, adults like they're, they're fools, and it was completely a little kid's point of view. Uh, and you know, Toho would never really try to do that, especially Mr. Honda had, had always didn't want to make films with that kind of condescending view of, uh, of, of children. He, he always gave them a little bit uh, more credit. Now, uh, 
going into this into uh, this particular film, Destroy All Monsters had just come out, and Toho had intended for Destroy All Monsters to be the last Godzilla film. They really, you know, thought, okay, they pulled out all the stops. There's no reason to go any farther with Godzilla. Let's change pace. Let's do other types of uh, science fiction films. And instead, they wanted to. They were, they had. Uh, been working on an arrangement with Filmation Studios in the U.S. to do a, a Godzilla animated series, 26 episodes of 30 minutes each. And of course that, uh, that project never really uh, came to be, but their intention was to start editing some of these uh, TV episodes together and make like mini feature films that they were going to be releasing in their upcoming Champion Festival. But uh, they thought that they could make you know, a new kind of series of science fiction films and special effects films, and I think the first one of those was Latitude Zero. Mm -hmm. Latitude Zero came out in August of, of 69 and was a failure. Even kids didn't really have any interest in it. And the you know, unfortunate part of that was, yeah, Toho lost a lot of money, but uh, as a result, that really pretty much gave uh, giant monsters, uh, a second life, and you know, Toho executives decided that, well, okay, uh, let's you know, take a look at uh, you know reviving Godzilla again. Yep, and they were. Uh, did you mention that uh, part of the plan for the filmation project, the, the co-venture with filmation, was to uh, edit some of those episodes together and, and, and yeah, make a feature film? Yeah, yeah, that, that. So. Uh, one of the questions that comes up occasionally is when did Toho start looking at Godzilla, the Godzilla franchise, as a, you know, a children's entertainment property? And it kind of happened gradually, and not, not just the Godzilla franchise, but the entire Kaiju Ega, really. Uh, as, as early as the mid-60s, uh, during the course of our research for the Honda book, we found uh, Toho Studio newsletters where uh, Honda would have like a column and one, in one of these columns, he was talking about the success of, uh, of Ghidra, the three-headed monster, which was a, a very big box office success in 64. Uh, and uh, he was talking about uh, the uh, fan mail that he would receive. And most of it at that time, which is already pretty early in the mid-60s, he was uh, receiving most of his fan mail from uh, grade school children who were, you know, talking about, you know, the, the wonderful monsters that they had seen. So he consciously, he was conscious of the fact that the audience was getting younger, and at the same time there was this tension where he was continually trying to, to uh, not condescend to the, to the children in the audience and to make films for as wide a possible, as possible an audience. But uh, when War of the Gargantuas came out, uh, just a couple of years after that, they were already marketing these films directly to children by having the monsters make guest appearances on children's entertainment programs on television. So there was a consciousness on the part of the company that the audience was getting younger and younger. Uh, and then there was Shinichi Sekizawa. Shinichi Sekizawa was, of course, I'm sure you know, uh, one of the two primary writers for the Godzilla series and the entire Kaijuega at Toho. And uh, he was also really heavily responsible for changing the tone of, of these films and, and widening it to a more uh, family-friendly and uh, skewing younger audience, uh, starting with Mothra in 1961. That was the first uh, conscious attempt by the studio to make a really uh, family-friendly film of this type. And of course, it has, it's the, the first Toho film of this type to have a, a child in the main cast. 
Um, so it was Sekizawa who actually came up with the idea for uh, Godzilla's Revenge, All Monsters Attack. He pitched an idea for a story, and it's a little bit nebulous as to uh, whether or not uh, stock footage was part of the original plan, because his original draft uh, included Rodan and a giant octopus, and there are no um, scenes where Godzilla really interacts with those two creatures from in past films what that would have really worked for this film as in terms of the way it, it eventually was developed but Sekizawa pitched an idea uh, for a, a film of this type uh, the project was actually approved we want to give you an idea of how quickly this film came together because it was really fast uh, even compared to some of the the previous films in the series I mean they always worked on a really accelerated timeline but this was exceptionally so uh, at a meeting of uh, Toho's executives in September of 69 to approve the holiday film slate for, uh, for later that year, uh, this project was approved. And it was fast-tracked, and Sekizawa actually, he must have already had some writing uh, in the can because he turned in his first draft of the script uh, in the middle of September, about a week after the project was approved. And then uh, within just weeks, they were auditioning actors, they had um, finalized the script, and they were scouting locations and uh, finalizing the plans for the sets. And Honda actually started shooting this film on October 11th of 1969, just a few weeks after it was approved by the board. And the film was released just over two months later. So he started shooting on October 11th, and the release date was December 20th. So that's pretty remarkable. And, um, and so that's one of the reasons, I'm sure, why there's so much location shooting uh, and you know, fewer sets. But even so, that's, that's quite a remarkable schedule. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, as far as the, the screenplay that Sakizawa delivered, uh, I mean, basically, you have this film, uh, which is you know, a kind of, uh, I guess you know, Steve has put it in an interesting term, a meta-monster movie. I mean, it doesn't take place in the real world. And this is where I think probably you can get away with uh, a lot of the things that they, they do in this film because, okay, maybe it's, you look at it and you think, oh, gee, these are the same scenes that I've seen before. But you know, if you put it in the context that this is a little kid and these adventures are taking place in his imagination and in his dreams, well, okay, uh, you know, he's, like a lot of kids in that day, he's been seeing monster movies and this is what he, he imagines in his mind after he's seeing monster movies and he dreams about. So, yeah, the, would it be the same kind of things that he just saw in a theater a few years ago? Probably so. I mean, if you want to rationalize why they have this kind of stock footage. So it does, you know, it does make uh, a certain amount of sense within that context. There's not really any continuity in this film, you know, if you, if you look at it from, from that viewpoint. It's really, you know, kind of outside the previous Toho universe where it really recognizes that, you know, this film is not, is taking place in the real world, not in the world of actual monsters. Right. And, it, you know, the story that he created, it's told from the child's point of view. So yes, it's going to appeal very directly to kids in the audience, but at the same time, uh, it's it's written in a, in a, a more clever way that uh, I think, you know, if you really take the time to watch it uh, as the intended audience, you know, which is kids, 
uh, you know, from their viewpoint that even an adult can understand, oh yeah, I, I, I see what you know, they're trying to appeal to in the, in the, the child in the audience. Uh, it basically just you know, presents a couple of days in the life of this little kid. Uh, there's not really any science fiction element to it, and there's no scenes of destruction, which of course the poster kind of uh, promoted, at least when I saw that poster, I was thinking, well, where's all the destruction? Let's go. I mean, even you saw in the opening credits, they had this, you know, the footage from the previous from Destroy All Monsters. So I was expecting that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it presents a, a number of interesting themes when you, you know, when you consider the film very carefully. You know, you have this lonely little kid. He's bullied all the time. I mean, and when you're in, in uh, you know, preschool and uh, early elementary school, lots of kids can relate to exactly that kind of experience. Uh, and you know, it, it, at the by the end, it also creates a, a certain sense of courage in the kid and, and some self-reliance that he develops all through these imaginative scenes that he goes through in his mind when he's sleeping. Uh, you know, and, and as Honda and uh, Sekizawa were, were want to do, they, they were always looking for adding these theme, you know, contemporary themes. And as Steve mentioned earlier, you know, especially the theme of the latchkey kid, that was really something that as the uh, you know, economic boom was starting to take place in Japan, that uh, there were a lot of families that just couldn't you know, go through the traditional model of mom staying at home and dad goes out and, and works to support the family, that both both members of the, you know, the parents had to work and kids were kind of left home alone. And that's you know, one of the unfortunate things that was very prevalent in that day and, and Honda took the time to address that in this uh, particular film. Yeah. Um, so the, the movie takes place in Kawasaki, which is a, it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's, a, it's a city, but uh, looking up a, a few details about it, I found out that it was incorporated just a couple of you know, years after this film was made, uh, but in, in any case, it's a city uh, about midway between Tokyo and Yokohama, part of the greater Tokyo metropolitan area, and uh, it's a city where, uh, after the war, a lot of companies, uh, industrial during the, the post-war industrialization boom, a number of companies opened factories there, Toshiba, Hitachi, there are chemical plants there, uh, cement plants, and it's a place uh, that has kind of suffered the trade-offs of this post-war economic miracle that Japan experienced in the 50s and forward. Uh, the, sh the film opens with these uh, shots that set the scene perfectly uh, with uh, smokestacks, uh, you know, uh, factories belching smoke from smokestacks. Uh, you have uh, tr big trucks, heavy trucks uh, driving down the street, so you get a sense of both uh, pollution and blight and heavy traffic, and then the kids are walking home from school in this uh, hostile environment, this, uh, this polluted environment. Um, you know, beginning also in around 1960 with Prime Minister Ikeda's income doubling plan, uh, there was this uh, sense of uh, upward mobility, this desire for upward, mo upward mobility in Japanese uh, society and a, a much more um, conscious attempt to uh, to uh, acquire lifestyle, you know, consumer items, consumer goods, things like televisions and washing machines and refrigerators. And so the, one of the themes in the movie is money. Uh, the adults in the movie in particular are obsessed with uh, either stealing it or, uh, you know, the robbers or the recovering it, the, the crooks, 
or in the case of Ichiro's dad, just um, you know, saving it, earning it, and and uh, finding a way to improve your status in life. There's a, a conversation early in the movie where uh, uh, Ichiro's dad, uh, you know, passes by his kid on, on the way. Uh, I guess he's you know driving by in the train. His dad is a uh, works in the, for the railroad company, and uh, and then there's a conversation where they're sitting down. He and his buddy are having a smoke break. And uh, it's a little more detailed in the Japanese version, but he basically says, I wish I could you know, save enough money or make enough money to move out of here. Uh, so that's their station in life. They're living in this, this, this city that's kind of caught in the uh, nexus of uh, Japan's uh, economic boom and some of the trade-offs of that. Um, there also there is evidence not only of um, you know air pollution in this film, but there's you know, little scenes that that go by in a hurried way. But there's the scene where the kids are fishing in this sort of polluted little waterway, and I don't I know it comes out much more uh, heavily and more dire directly in uh, Godzilla vs. Hedera a couple of years later. But you know I'm reminded. If, have any of you read about uh, things like Minamata disease? I'm sure some of you have. I mean this is a pretty famous case in Japan. Uh, it was a, a case of mercury poisoning in uh, the waterways. It was first reported in uh, the late 50s, and then there was there was another outbreak in the 60s, and this continued on and resulted in uh, lots of litigation over the years. But um, there was a consciousness beginning, uh, just like in the United States, with the publication of things like Silent Spring and eventually, you know, the environmental movement. But there was a sort of nascent. Uh, environmental consciousness in Japan also, and I think the film in, it, in these brief little ways is touching upon things like that too, and some of the, the ways that these, these conditions are affecting kids and families. Um, also, I wanted to touch on the, the criminals in this film. They're, they're actually uh, part of the, the, uh, the comic relief of the film, uh, but like uh, this, like some of the other things that are reflective of real life in this film, the criminals are, or the, the crime that uh, takes place in the background of the film is uh, loosely based on an actual event that occurred in Japan the prior year. It was known as the 300 million yen robbery. Uh, the, uh, there was an armored car heist that's actually been depicted in a couple of films uh, in which the criminals made away with a, the equivalent of about $800,000. And that crime has never... It's, it's, I guess it's sort of incorrect to say that it's never been solved. There, there were individuals who were implicated in the crime, but because of the statute of limitations uh, expiring, these individuals were never prosecuted for the crime. So it's still on the, you know, technically an unsolved crime all these decades later. Okay. All right. Well, now let's move on a little bit to talk about the director, Ishiro Honda, who, uh, as you know, we... Uh, wrote a biography about, uh, so we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about Mr. Honda when we're discussing this film. And you know, what you see on the screen here is a photo of him uh, with uh, directing Minyan and Ichiro, copy of his script. Uh, he, he never really worked directly with child actors throughout his career up until this point. And uh, it's actually kind of amazing to think that uh, you know a guy who had never really done any any kind of directing of, of kids could do such a, a really good job at, at bringing out strong performances among these kids, especially uh, uh, the the main character. Uh, but you know, and you know, fortunately, we have 
you know, the, the Honda family made available to us a, a number of really nice photos that uh, show him working on the set here with the child actors. And uh, one of the things that uh, the staff that worked with uh, Mr. Honda notices that he really seemed to have just a, a, a nice knack for working with little kids. And uh, in fact, uh, the assistant director Hashimoto, who is, by the way, a uh, guy who many years later would be the director of the 1984 Godzilla, he was assistant to uh, Honda on this particular film, and he said that you know Honda's style was that he would just very simply explain a scene to the kid and then just let him, let him act so he could get the purity of a child's uh, performance out of this. You know, the, the, the point being that you, know, you could, um, many directors made the mistake of overcoaching kids and you know, trying to explain very precisely, oh, you need to do this and then do that. But you get kids that are just very self-conscious of how they're performing. And uh, he, you know, especially Mr. Honda was uh, very aware of that and, and made a, a strong effort to just keep it simple for the kids. And uh, I mean, it's funny that you know, Hashimoto uh, mentioned that uh, he said that, that this was something, especially in, uh, in, in the uh, generation of, of Mr. Honda and Kurosawa that the directors were keenly aware of. Uh, he, he mentioned that even Kurosawa knew you don't yell at kids or, or try and over direct them. Uh, and as, you know, as far as how he uh, handled this particular subject of film and, and, and the cast, uh, uh, Teriyushi Nakano, the assistant uh, special effects director for uh, Mr. Tsuburaya, he had done a lot of, uh, early in his career, as assistant director also for, the, uh, for live action filming. And he was pretty much you know, Honda's main assistant on this film because, because you know, Honda was handling both sides of the production here. And so Nakano was around the whole time. And, and even in, in his biography, he mentions that uh, Honda himself uh, never changed his style or his attitude, regardless of what the type of film was. And he, he said, especially for this film, he kept a very solid attitude that he always had with his other films, that he treated the subject very seriously. And uh, whether it was adults, children, a large concept story such as you know some of the science fiction films or little films such as this one or some of his other drama films. He always main, maintained a very you know, even keel on how he presented himself and handled his, uh, his technical staff. I, I think the direction of this film is very, it's appropriately subtle. This is a film that could have easily been over-directed, uh, but he, his sort of hands-off approach really works with this style of film. The child actor who uh, does not this is a this this child here with the, the who's got the wonderful smile yeah. and the hat uh, Tomonori Yazaki who admittedly we don't know a tremendous am amount about he had a, he was in uh, some uh, episodes of Kamen Rider but he, he didn't have a tremendously long career but um, he's really wonderful in this performance and he he carries much of the film there are a lot of scenes where where he's alone in his room and, and in the factory you know, where he's there's these wonderful scenes where he's, uh, you know, wandering through the abandoned factories. We talked about this uh, being sort of an industrial city, and it's a location where there were a number of uh, kind of burned out or, or uh, condemned factory buildings that were held over from the war period, and uh, and so they use those as locations. And there there's some wonderful scenes that, you know, certainly, I, you know, I actually grew up in an area again just to <laughs> relate to the film, but I grew up about a block and a half from the Southern Pacific Railroad. And so after school, my friends and I would go down to the the train tracks 
and, and just play down there. And we would often find, you know, discarded items that may have fallen off the train and, you know, in the, in the gravel, excuse me, around the, uh, the actual train track. So when he picks up the vacuum tube and is polishing it off and things like that, I really could uh, to relate to this, this film. Uh, another thing to mention, um, you know, this is really a hybrid type film where it's incorporating these uh, stock footage sequences to uh, make up the, the fantasy sequences. Uh, the DP on this film was a gentleman named Mototaka Tomioka, and I think that was a really important uh, choice. And he's the DP. You know, normally, as as Ed said, there was one crew on this film for both the effects and live action work, and normally there would have been a separate DP for the effects. And in this film, um, Tomioka shot uh, basically everything, and uh, Tomioka was the DP for Saramasa Arikawa's effects unit on both uh, Son of Godzilla and uh, um, EBITDA. So I think that's really important that the, the visual style, there's a, there's a sense of at least some continuity throughout the film. I know that the, uh, the, the effects sequences when they're edited together, I know there's this sort of mishmash of Godzilla suits that uh, maybe from one cut to the next are, are, don't match. But and sometimes I think it shifts from day to night or vice versa. But it, in in a way it works because those are dream sequences. Um, Honda, um, as we mentioned, this tension between wanting to direct films and make films for a, as wide a possible audience and not wanting to condescend to children. There was also this feeling among the staff that you know they wanted to make you know works like Latitude Zero. They they there was a resentment at having to make uh, you know kids films, but Honda really, you know, makes the best of it with this. This is really, um, in, in some ways, because it takes place in the real world and not the Tohoverse, it's a radical departure to, to make a film in, in such realistic terms as this. But I also like the way there are, the way he incorporates the, the, the connection between the dream world and the, and, the, and the real world. There's this really in, interesting trope, this sort of Alice in Wonderland kind of trope uh, with the, um, the recurring motif both in the real world and uh, the dream sequences with these holes that Ichiro falls through and those holes both get Ichiro into trouble and are the ways that he gets out of trouble. If you remember how he, he, um, he basically comes out of the hole. The first time he falls into the hole, he's trapped. He comes out and he meets Minya, who becomes the, his, uh, his best friend and helps him uh, you know, learn the lessons that he'll learn in the course of this story. And the hole in the factory that he falls through, that, well, he ends up using that hole as a way to get out of trouble with the, uh, the kidnappers. Uh, and also, Honda uses this film. There, there's moments of there are moments of comic relief in it. Honda was a big admirer of um, the works of uh, people like Charles, Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd. He studied a lot of uh, you know silent films during his days as a student, and uh, he uses some of that type of uh, silent film comedy, especially at the end uh, in the scene with the sign painter, which is one of the scenes that uh, I think is the most memorable in the entire film, even though it's <laughs> entirely kind of a, just a, it's like a comic button at the end. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, let's talk a little bit about the kids. Uh, this, again, is Yazaki. He, uh, he uh, appeared in Kamen Rider. Uh, actually, I was going to ask you about this because, you know, during the course of our research on the film, we really wanted to interview this, this fellow, and we, tra we tried tracking him down. Uh, there are other people with that same name that we, you know, we tr we thought we had, you know, located the right individual, but it turned out, out to be somebody else. Uh, you just told me recently yeah. that somebody found 
Yazaki, yeah. and yet he doesn't want to do an interview. Yeah. Right. The, the, this particular you know, individual, I mean, they, for many years in Japan, people have been trying to find this, this guy to interview him and find, you know, get some, some more information about what happened during the filming of this uh, particular motion picture. But he's, he'd been very successful in evading detection. But, uh, you know, one of the, so, you know, one of the staff writers for uh, Egehiho, one of the magazines that puts out a lot of these special effects books in Japan these days, was able finally to track him down, but uh, when they finally did, uh, he just declined to have any comment. He basically, he just wanted to keep his privacies. I don't know if it's you know what what to read into that, other than maybe you know it's something happened 50 years ago. It's it's like he doesn't you know really remember and didn't uh, particularly want to participate. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, all the stories that he could tell us about this film uh, seem to be. You know, something that we're not going to be able to learn, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Well, there, there are actually two actors in the cast uh, that I want to mention that um, are recurring members of Honda's uh, sort of fluctuating troupe of the 50s and 60s, and both of them are kind of known for having um, uh, interesting uh, facial looks, uh, really signature looks. First is uh, Sachio Sakai. Uh, here he is, uh, the, one of the two uh, gangsters in the film. Uh, and Sakai, of course, is in a lot of Honda films. Uh, you, may know, you might know him best as um, the uh, reporter in the first Godzilla film. And he shows up in a lot of other films. A lot of people say he looks like, not in this picture, but some people have said they think he looks like Mo Howard. Uh, <laughs> he's in a lot of Honda pictures. And there's one picture that we showed a clip from last year. I think it was last year when we were doing a Honda panel. Uh, he plays. He's because of his his unique look. He he's good at playing a kind of a, a creep. And uh, there's a one uh, Honda one of Honda's dramatic films, or just kind of a comedy drama called Song for a Bride, uh, which is about a, a family of, of and, and, and where these three young women eventually uh, you know grow up and uh, and meet their suitors. And uh, Sakai plays this real creep in that film. <laughs> he uh, he has like an eight millimeter film camera, and he's going around you know taking footage of, of women's legs and things like that. He's like a real kind of shady character. But um, he's the, one of the two guys who gets to hit with the um, atomic breath fire extinguisher at the end of the film. Uh, another person uh, that we have to mention is uh, Hideo Amamoto, who plays uh, Minami, the, the toy maker. Uh, it's a wonderful part. Uh, and don't we all wish that, you know, especially if you were a lonely kid like me growing up, uh, you know, in a single parent household or, and not, uh, you know, having people to play with after school, what a, what a dream to be able to, to have a next door neighbor who is inventing toys and asking your opinion. So it's an idealized uh, version of a... Of an unfortunate childhood, <laughs> and, and and you know, Amamoto is really famous for playing all these really weird, offbeat characters. And this is one, the really few times that you get to see him in a just normal, likable role. And and right. it, it's something that you know a lot of the staff people at Toho mentioned that like this is the the time where you got to see Amamoto as he really is. That this you know this this character you know actually had a lot of his his true personality. Amamoto had a, a long career. I mean, he, he started working in films in the 50s, and he's in, uh, if you're familiar with the film 24 Eyes, he's in that. He's in Yojimbo. He shows up in a lot of Honda films, Atragon. He's in uh, 
the spy film that became uh, part of uh, What's Up Tiger Lily. I mean, he's in a, a ton of films. And of course, he's in uh, GMK and Common Rider is probably what he's best known for, maybe? I don't no, know. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Oh, he was in Doctor Who just before. Doctor I mean, he was Doctor Who just before this. Sorry. That was a slip. Uh, so there, he's... That's a wonderful part, and uh, again, uh, and much different than than the way his part was perceived in a, on a certain website that interviewed Ed some time ago. If you know what we're talking about, uh, we won't get into that. Uh, you can ask Ed later. Uh, Kenji Sahara, of course, is one of Honda's uh, primary actors, going back to Rodan, and here he is in a, a rather small part. This is a great still to illustrate uh, Sahara's role in this film. Uh, not the least of which is apparently he actually was driving the train in this scene. Uh, a conductor for, I think it's the Honkyu Railway? Is that the, the, no, no, no. Honkyu was what they suggested he get. Oh, okay. Well, 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 no, never mind that. But so much, in any case, uh, there was supposed to be somebody inside the train driving it for him, but apparently it interfered with his position in the cabin. So he, he was actually given like a 30 minute uh, lesson on how to drive the train, and he was very proud of the fact that he actually was able to do that uh, uh, for this film. But what I like especially about this scene, one of the things about this film is, the, you know, and one of the things that emphasizes Ichido's loneliness is the separation between himself and his parents. And in the scenes with the father, uh, he's never shown on film in the, you know, together with his father. The shots, even when they're within the same frame, they emphasize the distance between the two of them, uh, both in this scene and then there's a scene later in the film where the father will rush to Ichiro's uh, assistance when he gets into a bit of trouble. And I like that one too because Ichiro is in the, in the foreground and the father's way in the background. And so it's subtle, but it really is emphasizing this, this sense of distance between uh, the two of them. And of course, Sahara is great. And he was at G-Fest, I think, more than one time, right? So probably several times. And you know him from Rodan and, and all kinds of other films. So. He needs no introduction. Uh, the mother is played by uh, Machiko Naka. She was a, a character actress who was in a ton of uh, Toho films in the 1960s. Uh, most notably, I don't know if you are familiar with the Wakadaisho, uh, Yuzo Kayama's uh, uh, film franchise in the 1960s. It was kind of like the uh, Elvis Presley of Japan, for lack of a better comparison. And she was a, a recurring figure in those. Films, and then there are the neighborhood kids who are just phenomenal. I think, especially uh, Gabara, the, the the boy bully with the Indianapolis 500 shirt on here. I just think this this kid is uh, appropriately menacing. And one of the things too that's really nice about this film is um, you may disagree, but I think when they dub this film into English, uh, each of those voice you could we could argue about whether or not that would, that characterization is appropriate. But I think the way the bullies' voices were done was appropriately um, menacing from a you know a ten year old standpoint. And you know there's a, a who's who. I don't know if you we have pictures of the the sort of uh, who's who of Honda actors that populate the rest of this film. But um, if you remember, there's the guy at the, who's either like a bartender or a, a food vendor, but that's um, Ikio Sawamura, the great Ikio Sawamura, who was in a bunch of Honda films and Kurosawa films and always plays sort of this... Uh, ah, shit. Yeah, huh? squirrely. Yeah, squirrely guy, I guess. Yeah, but it, he's he's really charming in this sort of yeah. impish way. You know, he's a he's always memorable in even in the tiniest of roles. 
the sign painter is an actor named Yutaka Nakayama, who's in a, um, bit parts in tons of films, including tons of Honda films. And Yoshifumi Tajima and uh, Chotaro Togen are the two cops. And Tajima, especially, is one of Honda's great, you know, um, you know, character actors. Was the one of the villains in Mothra vs. Godzilla, and, and just is in tons of stuff. And uh, the guy who, who plays the landlord, who's uh, showing the car that's for sale outside the uh, the apartment building, uh, he's also really good in this. And that's an actor named Shigeki Ishida, who's in a bunch of Honda films too. And there's here's a photo of three of the familiar actors to us, who we never see their faces on screen in this film. Uh, this is from left to right, Hiroshi Sakita playing Gabara, Marchand the Dwarf playing Minya, and of course, everyone's favorite Haru Nakajima is Godzilla. This is the only photo I could really find that had all three of them in it, and so I'm sorry it's not quite you know, the best quality, but uh, anyway, you know, Mr. Nakajima, who... Uh, was a, a, certainly a G-Fest favorite in his, in his time here. Uh, he was pretty much the pro who took control of the monster action in this film. Uh, as you know, he was always uh, very fond of pointing out that <clears throat> the directors generally trusted him greatly and they would always say, <clears throat> please do your thing, go ahead, you know, we'll leave all the fighting action up to you. He always loved you know, telling stories like that about whoever was uh, directing him. And so he, you know, he kind of pretty much took care of uh, creating all the action sequences in the special effects. Uh, Marchand uh, was a, a former professional wrestler and uh, when he was, he, was, he played uh, Minya in both Son of Godzilla as well as Destroy All Monsters. And he was selected at that time mainly because he was a professional wrestler. And being so, not only did he have the physical strength and stamina to uh, you know, withstand being in the monster suit, he was also very good at play acting. You know, he, he could take direction and, and perform certain stunts according to a script. Uh, so that made him kind of ideal for this. Uh, if anything, you know, the, the, the criticisms that his directors had for him were that he tended to overthink it a little bit and, and usually try to get too much direction and have too much precision in his performance, whereas most of the directors, when they were uh, you know, coaching him on the, the set, would just tell him, you know, relax and just go with it. Make it a very natural performance. But you know, the, he played Minya basically in, in, the, in these three films in the late 60s. And Hiroshi Sakita, he was a, another stunt actor from Toho, and he did a lot of suit acting as well. And, and he, he, uh, generally, he was uh, probably Nakajima's favorite actor to work with because he was also uh, well-trained in martial arts and in wrestling moves. So when they did a lot of physical action, Sakita was very receptive to Nakajima's direction and, and they, they tended to work together very well. Uh, Sakita's, some of his roles are uh, Sanda from uh, War of the Gargantuas. He played Angelus uh, in Destroy Monsters, Gorosaurus in King Kong Escapes, and he also played Ebira in uh, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. And you know, here's a like here's a photo of Nakajima actually just kind of like trying to set up the action for where they do the flip with Gabara. Uh, and yeah, you know, he uh, again he as he always likes to point out, he was uh, helping uh, coordinate the action with Mr. Honda. Now in this film, 
as uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier, this is unique among all the Toho science fiction films in that they only had one, mostly for budget purposes, but also because a lot of the special effects staff was not at Toho at the time. They were in Osaka preparing for uh, Expo 1970, so a lot of the, the normal effects technicians weren't even in Tokyo at the time of this film being made, so they had a really pretty much a skeleton crew. And so in addition to the budget consideration, the fact that they didn't have many staff people, they decided to just combine the, uh, the special effects and, and the drama. So Honda himself is, is directing the special effects on the set here. I mean, he actually supervised most everything, even uh, you know, the construction of the Gabra suit. Uh, this is at the early stages when they're just you know, getting the, the suit completed. Uh, but, but he did a lot of the, the direction himself. I know Teriyushi Nakano, the, uh, who assisted him a lot in the film, he likes to try and claim credit for actually doing the special effects and saying that, oh, Honda just you know, helped me out. But I mean, even uh, most, most all the other uh, technical staff that you've, I've talked to about this film all say Honda was in charge. And I think if you look at a lot of the photos, uh, the photos pretty much show that it was Honda who was really kind of you know, running the show here while on the set. Um, so anyway, uh, so this was you know, both from a financial and logistical point, Honda was doing this. Eiji Tsuburai himself, uh, although he, you know, the studio was kind of at odds with him because he was always trying, he was always taking resources from the studio uh, to make his you know, TV programs and he was kind of exerting more control over things at the studio than the, the studio brass liked. Uh, he was also very busy at this time. He was working uh, especially uh, in detail on Battle of the Japan Sea. And he had also uh, had some uh, episodes of, uh, of poor health and even took a leave of absence during the year. So he really wasn't available to work on this film. And even though he's credited as a special effects director, in fact, he really didn't uh, get involved in this film at all. Now, in, in terms of uh, stock footage, you know, yes, there was a lot of stock footage in this film, and that was certainly a financial consideration. Again, I think we mentioned a little bit earlier, I think it can kind of, in some way, justify it by the fact that this is, these are all dreams that this kid is having, and he's dreaming about things he, he would have seen in a movie theater in the last couple of years. So you can kind of cut them a little bit of slack. Uh, and Nakano had, had mentioned this several times about this film as well as the films in the 70s uh, because his films, uh, unfortunately, were stuck with a lot of stock footage. And uh, he took the position, more like the studio position, that, well, you know, the studio has paid for all this footage in the past and it's kind of an asset that Toho has. And seeing as that it's an asset they paid for, why shouldn't they be free to use it? And I think, you know, like, like a lot of people, especially Toho Brass, they would think, they, they kind of had the idea, well, gee, it's, you know, it's just kids. Kids are watching it. Kids aren't going to really notice. And we'll, we'll be able to do this and nobody's going to really care. But, of course, actually, I think probably a lot of us in the audience, where regardless of what age you saw it at, I mean, kids notice. I mean, even my daughter at three years old noticed. Anyway, so... Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the monsters themselves. Okay, Gabara. Okay, Gabara was designed and built by Tezo Toshimitsu. Um, he was, uh, excuse me, 
but the, he he did the the uh, as far as constructing the, the suit, Toshimitsu made the head of Gabra, but he designed the entire creature. But anyway, one of the things that uh, he wanted to do to add a little bit of menace to Gabra was he put that curved horn on the head of, of Gabra. And that horn is exactly the same horn that was used on King Ghidra, which he also designed and built. So he thought that that was going to make Gabra look a little more menacing. Now, I don't know what, uh, how, how well people know like what kind of creature Gabra is. Do you, I mean, if, if you really know, I wouldn't, I'd ask you not to say, but does anybody venture a guess, if you don't know what Gabra is, what do you think Gabra is supposed to be? No. What do you think? No? Okay, well, Gabra is supposed to be a toad. <laughs> so, I mean, if you, and, and you know, after learning that, Ribbit. it's like if you really think about it, if the guy in the suit had kind of crouched down and you know, like on, you know, got back on his haunches and, and made a, a, a pose like a toad, I suppose it really makes sense. But this is like, I guess, what a toad would look like if he had a horn and if he stood straight up instead of <laughs> bouncing around on his back legs. But that was, that was actually the intention of what they, they, you know, they had for Gabara. So the body, uh, the, the, again, as I said, the, uh, the head was made by Mr. Toshimitsu and the body by the Yagi brothers. This is the last film where the, the Toshimitsu Yagi brothers team made suits. They were making suits ever since the very first Godzilla, and this is the last film when the, the, both of them worked together as a team. Now, Godzilla. Obviously, this is Godzilla from Destroy All Monsters. They're using the same suit again. But it's not exactly the same suit because you know the, when you're doing filming, the film always, the the suit always goes through a lot of uh, wear and tear, and different things happen, and they have to uh, you know make some repairs to it. In the case of Godzilla, it was in pretty good shape, but they still had to fix a touch up the head, and mostly what they did with the head was they used sawdust and latex mixed together to kind of make this you know spiny. Uh, bristly kind of features on Godzilla's head, and they, they fixed the head up that way. There were little holes in the suit which they took wood shavings and stuffed wood shavings in there into the holes to fix it up, which is really surprising to me. But the other thing that I think is really kind of funny is that, uh, you know, Godzilla has this kind of like, uh, you know, scaly uh, skin texture, like little pieces of bark almost like on a, on a tree. And they had to replace an awful lot of that on the suit. And the reason was because at this time, when they took suits out into public, or when they made public appearances with the, with the monsters, they always took the real thing. They took the filming costumes out into public to do all these publicity events. You know, years later, they would make uh, additional suits, like they're kind of crude, crudely made suits, and they would take those out in public. But at this time, they were still taking the real thing. And so when they took it out in the public, you know, obviously, probably the same thing I would have done if I was a kid. You know, well, kids all run up and they want to see Godzilla and touch him. And of course, kids love to take souvenirs. So the, skin, the suit would come back with missing lots and lots of skin details, so they would have to recreate them, you know, before they decided to, to film for an, uh, the next film. Minya is the same suit as was used in Destroyal Mon Monsters and Son of Godzilla. Exactly the same suit. 
Now, uh, one of the things, uh, however, it's, it's really kind of showing its age and it starts to, uh, the, the rubber is already starting to mush. I saw this suit like about after this film, maybe 10 years after this was made and, and pretty much Minya's head had just kind of like almost sunk into the body and mm -hmm. it, it, really, it really looked pretty sad. But this, for this film, as Steve had pointed out, there was uh, a lot of talk about other monsters that would have, which originally were supposed to be in the film. Now, this is one piece of artwork I got from Yasuyuki Inoue when I visited him one time. I found this in the bottom of a box that he didn't even know he had it. And this was one of his uh, preliminary image boards for Godzilla's Revenge. And uh, at that time, there was supposed to be Mothra, as well as, if you look on the far right side, uh, you had both of the Gargantuas who were also going to be in this film. That, that this was kind of like some of the concept that, concepts of what they thought Monster Island would be like before they actually wound up uh, fleshing the, out the script. The octopus up there. Yeah, uh, yeah. right. Uh, which is, I think you said, the octopus yeah. and, and yeah, Rodan. Part of the, the right. fascinating. So, and that, that basically, you know, there's not a lot that has ever been written about this film. So, that, uh, unfortunately, there's not too much more we can talk about as far as production stories on this film. We really don't have much in the way of memories that uh, any of the staff people have about it. But one of the things that we can mention is that two months after this film was made, the special effects department at Toho was disbanded. Uh, you know, that was, you know, this was kind of like in the middle of the, the this, this pretty much the beginning of the end for the film industry in Japan where things were just going so poorly that they decided to dismiss all the staff and they were, you know, the, the staff that they did retain, they went to a new department which uh, eventually a year later would uh, become Toho Eizo with uh, a separate company that would provide special effects for both Toho as well as for the, the TV films that were being fil filmed at Toho. Uh, well, that's just uh, well, the one thing I wanted to point out, just briefly, the, the film ends with three fights. There's the fight between Minya and Gabara, there's the fight uh, between Ichiro, who's inspired by his friend Minya and to, to confront the bank robbers and, and get out of trouble, and then there's the final fight with the, uh, the neighborhood bullies, which I really like because it's rendered in such a way that it's almost like comic book panels. It's, it's very well done. Honda had this sort of aversion uh, to depicting uh, fisticuffs, uh, uh, violence between people. Uh, especially you can notice it going back to like, something like the first Godzilla where Ogata and Serizawa are fighting and then it, the camera kind of pans behind the, 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 the fish tank and you don't get to see the, the real uh, bloody part of the fight. And there are other examples. There's a, uh, one of his dramatic films where there's a big street fight between uh, a bunch of guys and a gang and the camera is, shoots it from really far away above the street so you can't really see what's going on. Uh, we were in the, a couple of us were in the, the bar earlier and they were playing that scene from Destroy All Monsters where uh, 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 Akira Kubo yanks off his girlfriend's earrings and there's blood everywhere and that's kind of, there are these rare exceptions but this film is really, it's really nice the way he handles the violence especially in light of the fact that uh, it's for a, a child audience and the film ends on this really optimistic note where Ichiro has triumphed over um, the bad guys uh, big and small uh, there's uh, acknowledgement of this social problem of latchkey kids and the sort of economic trade-offs and their effects on the, the traditional family structure. Uh, mom cries as, as Ichiro leaves for school and he goes out and he's you know, becoming more independent. 
uh, and then he's greeted by the reporters, and you know he becomes a local celebrity. Um, so Honda had to, you know, acknowledges this social problem, and there's this idea that everything eventually is going to be okay. I just wanted to briefly mention another film that came out several months before uh, Godzilla's Revenge and has a lot of similar themes to it. And if you're interested in Japanese films of that period, you might want to seek it out. Uh, it's available through the Criterion channel, and it's called Boy. It's directed by Nagisa Oshima, who's probably best known for The Realm of the Senses, a controversial film from the 70s. But in the uh, 50s and 60s, he was one of the leaders of the Japanese New Wave movement. And Boy uh, Shonen is not, I don't think, one of his best-known films, but it's a really uh, interesting and compelling film uh, that has a lot of parallels to Godzilla's Revenge, even though it's handled in a completely different way. It's also about a young boy who wanders around in a yellow cap. Those caps were worn by kids so that uh, they wouldn't get, basically wouldn't get hit by cars. Um, and uh, he is bullied in one or two scenes. He spends his free time wandering around playing in a junkyard. Uh, so there are a lot of parallels between the two films. And he, ha you know, he has problems with his parents. He's, to say he's underparented is an understatement, but it goes in a far different direction than this film. And this film, uh, and this child whiles away his time. Uh, he basically battles his loneliness, loneliness by dreaming of a world where he battles giant monsters. So there's a strong parallel there. Uh, even though you never see those giant monsters as you do in this film, but he relates those stories to his little brother. Um, so this film, Godzilla's Revenge, uh, was released through the Champion Matsuri Festival. It was the uh, sort of uh, uh, introduction of Godzilla to that format, which many of you are familiar with. Uh, and um, it was released in the United States. You want, you want to show, the, the, there's a rare artifact, which some of you may be familiar with and others not. It was initially titled... I think Godzilla's Revenge is a fantastic title, and it actually, I think in some respects, that's a reason why some people have a negative reaction to the film, because Godzilla's Revenge is such a great title, and the film is really not about Godzilla's Revenge. It's about revenge, but not Godzilla's Revenge. Anyway, Minya, Son of Godzilla. Uh, Henry Saperstein, uh, who uh, was responsible for bringing a lot of the Godzilla films to the United States in the 60s and 70s through his company, uh, UPA, uh, he acquired this film, and he initially, when you saw the film in a, in a drive-in, was it under this title? Okay. So it, to what extent did it, did it get a release I, I, under this title? I don't think it got any release. No, under okay. This so they just prepared materials and, and never went through with it. At some point, you, for someone who claimed to have such a close relationship with Toho, it's kind of unbelievable that he wouldn't know that there was already a film in distribution titled Son of Godzilla. But nevertheless, uh, he changed his plans and came up with the alternate title, Godzilla's Revenge, which I think is a, a fantastic title and really evocative. Um, and then, uh, you know, the film, basically the way it was released in the United States was uh, just a dubbed version of the, um, of the Japanese version. However, uh, there's a song that was uh, substituted for the opening title theme. They had to change the opening title theme because in the original version, it's sung in Japanese. And um, uh, it would have been interesting if they did something like what was done with Smog Monster and just dub it over in English. But instead, they chose a, uh, a film, uh, a song that uh, was done by, uh, I'm not even going to attempt to uh, 
pronounce this composer's name, but um, it, yeah, the the, film, the the song is actually available. You can find it on YouTube, and I think it was released on a a compilation of uh, 1960s crime music. So I suspect that this this song wasn't you know recorded for no. for use with this film no. that that Henry Saperstein and his t- crew just found it and decided yeah. to use it and yeah, hopefully it's titled, titled crime fiction if you want to look it up yeah and one one of the curiosities is that the opening title sequence in the english version says that the song uh, the the main title theme is march of the monsters and it's attributed to crown records so they're clearly referring to the main title theme of the the japanese version which Seems like a some but some something was lost there in the translation. But in any case, yeah. uh, do you have any questions that you or comments about the film? Things you want to share? Well, the the Champion Matsuri films uh, were much shorter. They tended to run around an hour long. Yeah. This one they wouldn't have had to cut much out of it to to match that running time uh, if they no. did so at a later date. No. But no, I mean it, this was really this, this was the first Godzilla film to uh, headline. Uh, a Matsuri festival showing, and there was no there was no reissue of this one, uh, but you know, the runtime I think is what sixty nine minutes. 69. Yeah, and, and which is the ideal running time for the Matsuri festival. All those other film, Honda films, previous films were pretty much cut down to around seventy minutes to fit that particular format. So this particular film really didn't require any editing. It was made to be that particular length. Mm. You sir. Any yeah. insight into why one of the few sequences of, uh, of new effects footage is actually like a, a recreation, basically? Of, uh, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, the the famous scene uh, from Son of Godzilla where uh, uh, Godzilla teaches its offspring how to uh, how to emit radioactive breath, and it's the famous uh, you know scene where the the child can only blow smoke rings, and then until Daddy steps on his tail. And yeah, it was refilmed for this version. I don't know why. I've actually been curious about that myself. That the the way Godzilla's parenting is portrayed in this version is a little different than in the first film, and, I, and that may have had something to do with it. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, no. That's a, yeah, it's no great question. Into that, yeah. Unfortunately. Back there. It was before the era of political correctness, and um, I mean, I'm not making a comment on that, yes. but there, there are other pieces of content from the same time period. There's an episode of the Brady Bunch where, um, is it Bobby that's bullied? And uh, the lesson that he's taught is to go punch the bully in the mouth, which, <laughs> you know, you never make a, a episode of a primetime television show today with that message and get away with it. So it's interesting how things have changed, yeah. Yeah. You, sir. Well, and, and, and you may not be able to hear in the back, but this gentleman was re- just relating that uh, at the other panel on this film, it was uh, said that uh, Yazaki, the actor who played the, uh, the main kid, uh, was contacted and just didn't remember anything, so he couldn't really speak to the experience of working on the movie. Right. Well, that that's the comment that uh, you know that I've made about that scene too. But I don't know if that's the the um, that still doesn't explain exactly why they they you know went to the trouble to reshoot that scene. But uh, in, the gentleman is just relating that uh, uh, the reshooting of the the fire breathing tutelage uh, was done possibly to make uh, Godzilla seem like a more stern parent, which he does in the in the version in this film. 
Well, thank you so much. All right. All right. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.